From the Salvation Army, welcome to the Holiness Podcast with Lieutenant Colonel Vern Jewett. In this monthly Bible study, we'll be exploring God's gift of holiness, which is offered to every Christian. To download this month's study guide, visit us at salvationarmysoundcast.org holiness. Hi, this is Vern Jewett, and this is the Holiness Podcast, a place where we... Uh, Together, do in-depth Bible studies on scriptural holiness. And it's great to have you join us this month on the Holiness Podcast. Today, we're going to do a textual study of 1 Corinthians, the third chapter, verses 1 through 17. If possible, I suggest you have a Bible before you as we work through the verses of this passage and the teaching that's found there. Now, this passage is about holiness, and the teaching is a direct application by Paul of correction and admonishment to a congregation that is divided. We know a lot about groups of people being divided. We are at a time in our country when politically I don't ever remember us being more divided. So this is a real-life situation, an actual situation which reveals spiritual maturity, immaturity, which is harmful and is harming the church. It also includes actual direct teaching by the Apostle Paul which addresses the situation and calls the Corinthian believers to holiness. Let's begin then by reading the first five verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 3. I'll be reading from the New International Version. Brothers, I could not address you as spiritual, but as worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not yet ready for it. Indeed, you still are not ready. You are still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere men? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not mere men? What, after all, is Apollos? And what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned to each his task. I uh, love detective shows on TV. And I enjoy reading suspense-filled spy novels or detective stories. I suspect if God hadn't called me to ministry, I might have wanted to become a detective. But an interesting thing happened as I became a serious student of God's Word. I discovered that it was like detective work, examining the text, but also the context, the context of the passage, of the book, and of all of Scripture. It involved examining the historical situation of the story, 
of analyzing and understanding the characters involved. So many things are parts of doing effective Bible study. So when you look at our passage, the first five verses we've read of 1 Corinthians 3, in the context of what has already been said in this letter to the Corinthian church, you immediately recognize that he's picking up where he started back in chapter 1 with what we'll call the Corinthian problem. Now, we know more about the church at Corinth than any other New Testament church. After all, the written correspondence includes Paul's two longest letters, totaling 29 chapters. And in those letters, Paul actually refers to at least two other letters. So one of the realities of studying the Corinthians is we're looking at only one side of an ongoing correspondence. It's like looking at uh, one side of a, of a love correspondence. Secondly, Paul addresses uh, a church that has problems. They're probably best known for their problems. And so in order to be ready for what we're going to see in 1 Corinthians 3, we need to go back to chapter 1. And the very first thing Paul addresses is the Corinthian problem. Now, he takes nine verses to have an extended greeting to those whom he's uh, loved and to whom he's writing. And uh, verses 4 through 9, he gives thanks to God for all they mean to him and to the church. Then he begins his letter, and immediately this is what he says, I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another so that there may be no divisions among you, and you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. Still another, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized into the name of Paul? So the very first thing, barring any other subject, that Paul addresses is this same issue that we just read about in the first five verses of chapter 3. Now, how does he know about this problem? Well, not only by the written correspondence, but there are people who report to Paul what they know about the Corinthian church. And so enter into the picture Chloe and her people. Now, we don't know anything about Chloe except from this letter. And it's Chloe's household that have informed Paul about this problem of a quarreling congregation. Now, that's not something that we would have difficulty understanding. If you're a pastor, it's not something that would be new to you. For a few years, 
part of our responsibilities before we retired from active ministry were to give spiritual and administrative oversight to between 40 and 60 congregations. The last 12 years of our ministry, uh, we found ourselves there. And I have to say, I would occasionally get a phone call or I would get a whisper in the ear or I would get a letter from a number of members of the church and the Salvation Army would be from soldiers in the Corps about something happening in the Corps. Well, that's exactly what is keeping Paul abreast, not only by written, his written correspondence, but because he's talking to people who have visited or are in touch with the Corinthian church. So when we pick up at chapter 3, Paul has returned to this major problem of quarreling and division, and he's going to address it head on. You noticed, first thing he said was, Brothers, I sure wish I could address you as spiritual, but I can't. I have to address you as worldly. Now that's the word karnas, from which we get carnal. Some translations say worldly, some translate it carnal, some fleshly. But there's a great distinction in this passage, which will remind us of the last three podcasts when we addressed Romans chapters 5 to 8, and we saw the clear distinction between a spiritually mature Christian in chapter 8 and one who struggled also in chapter 8 and chapter 6. This is the same teaching of Paul, that there are two kinds of Christians for Paul, one who is spiritually mature and one who is fleshly. How could he tell? Well, the jealousy, the quarreling was a telltale sign. Those who said, well, I follow Paul, so I'm going to go this way away from you. When they do that, he says, it's a great phrase, are you not acting like mere men? A couple translations I've read say mere human beings or just men. In other words, as he had just described the mature Christian, the spiritual Christian, just a few verses before chapter 3 starts, as having the mind of Christ, he's saying, you do not have the mind of Christ. And it's tragic. The church at Corinth, Paul is saying to them, is not growing and not maturing. And he says they are essentially infants in Christ, that they could not receive solid food or teaching, but he had to give them pablum or baby's milk. I have a one-year-old grandson named Isaac who lives in New Jersey. I have another two-year-old grandson named Vernon, who lives in Kennesaw, Georgia. They are part of the joy of my life. I love toddlers, and they qualify 100%. They are walking uh, tentatively. They are learning to speak, and they are incredibly full of energy. It is nothing but 
pure fun to be around or to look at, which I'm doing more these days than being around these two wonderful toddlers. But you know, if three or four years from now, they were still barely talking and walking, it would no longer be wonderful fun. It would rather be tragic. Paul says to the Corinthians, you're acting like mere men, merely humans, just men, and I have to treat you like fleshly or worldly Christians instead of spiritual Christians. Now, there's a wonderful book I would recommend to you called Fresh Air. I don't think it's widely uh, known among my friends, but it's by Jack Levison. And uh, his chapter on this particular passage is what inspired me to pursue a study, particularly in, term, in the terms we're looking at today. What a tragedy it is when Christians live as if we are merely human. Now, he uses a wonderful illustration. The movie Finding Neverland. Playwright James Barry pretends his dog is a dancing bear. Now, Peter Llewellyn Davies, that's the boy who's going to uh, be central to the play Peter Pan and become Peter, which Barry would go on to write. He refuses to imagine that his dog is a bear. Peter complains, this is absurd. It's just a dog. <laughs> to which Barry replies, what a horrible candle-snuffing word. That's like saying, he can't climb that mountain. He's just a man. Or, that's not a diamond. It's just a rock. Just. How could the Corinthians have traded the transformation of the Holy Spirit for something that let them be just human? by quarreling and by indulging in jealousy, all the riches of the Holy Spirit at their disposal, and yet they live like mere humans. Levison says, what a candle-snuffing way. Actually, it was uh, Davies who says, what a candle-snuffing way to believe. And that's very frustrating for Paul. I want us to read the rest of the chapter, and then we're going to uh, take a close look at the lesson as it continues, beginning with verse 6. Remember, he's correcting them about their divisions. He says, I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God made it grow. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The man who plants and the man who waters have one purpose, and each will be rewarded according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation 
as an expert builder, and someone else is building on it. But each one should be careful how he builds, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If any man builds on this foundation, using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, his work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. If what he has built survives, he will receive his reward. If it is burned up, he will suffer loss. He himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's Spirit lives in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is sacred, and you are that temple. So to break down their penchant for quarreling with one another and the fact that they were not functioning as the body of Christ, they were not growing, they were not maturing, in a phrase we've used before, they were saved but stuck, Paul adopts three quick metaphors each intended to underscore that they are first and foremost a community that cannot be divided. First, he says they are a field, and the leaders over whom they are splitting are only farmers. God gives the growth. Secondly, they are a building, and the leaders help to lay a foundation. Jesus is that foundation. And finally, they are a temple, and the Holy Spirit fills them. He's telling them that their community is not about Apollos and Peter and Paul. It's about God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit. I'm going to uh, retell a story I told you almost a year ago on another podcast because it's just perfectly illustrative of uh, this lesson we're receiving today. I'm married to Martha, and uh, the day I got married to Martha is the greatest day I ever had, except the day I came to know the Lord. And uh, we got married in Atlanta. We were going to live immediately uh, in Kentucky, where we were both attending uh, universities. And the problem we faced was that uh, after our wedding, we had quite a large number of wedding gifts and we were going in a small car on our honeymoon. And so we had to have friends take our wedding gifts back to Kentucky for us. And after the honeymoon, we arrived back to our little trailer, uh, eight by 40, in High Bridge, Kentucky, and there waiting for us were our wedding gifts. Well, immediately we began to open them. <clears throat> and as we were opening them, a great revelation came to me. 
you see, uh, I understood and was just really beginning to understand that when you get married, all of a sudden, two are one, and you share everything that each other has. So all of Martha's assets are now mine. All of my assets are now hers. All of her liabilities are now mine. I think I mentioned last time that we had a good bit of liability between our college loans, and all my liabilities were hers. But you know what caught my attention on this occasion immediately was all of her assets are now mine. And after, I fin after we finished opening up the wedding gifts, I turned my attention to all the boxes they had brought up with Martha's belongings to see what I now owned. And I was very excited. It was like Christmas all over again. I mean, we both gained new belongings as we opened our wedding gifts, but now this was my discovering who and what I now owned as being Martha's husband. I remember the most exciting thing was that I now owned a popcorn popper. Martha loves popcorn. Well, that made me think later on as I was pondering the New Testament teaching that Christ is the groom and that we, the church, are the bride, that in that marriage, as we become restored to a wonderful fellowship with Christ, that he takes all of our liabilities, which we have many, few assets, which we have none, <laughs> and we would take his liabilities, but he has none, but here's the wonderful application of this little truth and story. We have all the assets of Christ available to us. They are now ours. And we have everything we need in abundance through his presence, through the Holy Spirit in our lives. Now, like the Corinthians, we too can ignore the transforming power of the Holy Spirit for something that stunts our spiritual growth. But like the Corinthians, what a tragic decision that would be. You see, by dividing into factions, they were not functioning as one body in Christ, not benefiting from each other's gifts. This is about the Holy Spirit being in us and leading us. This is about corporate holiness. The Holy Spirit mediates all of our relationships. In fact, one of the most profound thoughts and teachings that I'm just becoming able to appreciate in a practical way in my life is that when Christ comes in, it's not just me and Christ. Where is Christ and who is Christ in our world? Christ is in the church. And so it's not a, just a person-to-person -person decision when we are cleansed and enter into that complete, mature relationship and are growing in grace with Christ because Christ is more than just what is in me. 
Christ is also expressed in all of his gifts and presence in the body of believers, in fact, in the church universal, and all my contacts with any other believer are part of Christ in me. You see, I cannot be holy apart from you. You cannot be holy apart from me. I want to stop for a moment just to tell you that uh, I was sharing with Major Henderson and he shared with me about a listener's question about corporate holiness. And so we're beginning with this podcast and we're going to pursue that scriptural uh, teaching on corporate holiness for at least one, maybe two more podcasts. This is our introduction to it. And our textual verse You won't be surprised. Two verses are those last two verses, 16 and 17. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit lives in you? This is a a statement of us being the temple of God corporately. This is plural. Don't you know, and the way the NIV makes sure we know it's plural is it translates it, you yourselves. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit lives in you? Now, I have thought many, many times and have wrestled my whole life with the thought that my body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Later in this letter, 1 Corinthians 6.19, many of you will know and have considered, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? Therefore, honor God with your body. Growing up, I heard again and again that my body was the temple of the Holy Spirit, and that's true. But here, Paul says powerfully, in this third picture or metaphor. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit lives in you? And then, in his admonition, he's making clear that the reality of the Corinthian church is that God's temple is being harmed. He says, if anyone destroys God's temple, And what's the context? The context is that they're not growing, they're not maturing, they're arguing with one another. And the implication is they are destroying God's temple. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. Folks, this is not an arbitrary teaching. This is not a teaching that we can ignore. God's temple is sacred, he says, and you are that temple. More than one Bible scholar has suggested that the warmth and intimacy and inviting sound of the Southern expression, y'all, conveys the real sense of Paul's teaching here. So occasionally when I'm sharing this passage, I say to whatever group I'm addressing. Don't y'all know 
that y'all are the temple of God and that God's spirit lives in y'all? Well, after 50 years in the South, although I'm a Midwestern boy, I've become comfortable with that. I understand that. That speaks to me. The Corinthians, Paul urges, must stop destroying God's unified temple through cliques and quarrels and jealousies and schisms, or they, they will be destroyed. You see, those divisions are not casual and inconsequential. They're criminal and catastrophic to the church. Now, the implications of uh, what we're talking about is that I used to believe, I, I know I did, and I'm a fearful that many other Christians believe that this matter of holiness is God having all there is of you alone. It's just you and God. Think of how silly it is, though, as we consider that we are the temple, we ourselves, the whole body of Christ is the temple of God. How silly it is to think that God can dwell in one believer without filling the whole of the temple. Jack Levison, who I mentioned earlier, uh, pointed me to a verse that I had missed down over years of Bible study. First Kings tells the story of Solomon's uh, dedication of the temple. Now, I've preached on Solomon's address on dedication of the temple. It's a great passage, and I've heard many sermons on it. But there is a verse in 1 Corinthians 8, 10, and 11. Talking about the dedication of Solomon's temple, which describes this. A cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. Think about that. There was so much cloud, so much glory, that the priests couldn't even do their job in the temple. Makes me think of the song we sing in the Salvation Army from one of our musicals, When the Glory Gets Into Your Soul, My Brother. Now Solomon's temple had a lot of different spaces. There was a holy place, a holy of holies, a porch. There were storerooms, quite apart from the courtyards. Imagine if the glory cloud filled the storerooms, but not the holy of holies or the Holy of Holies, but not the porch. That would be a small and unimpressive cloud. Small enough to fill one room or two, one church, but not another, one denomination, or not the rest of them. You see, the Corinthians, with their divided temple, understand the glory of God and the holiness of God as a tiny little cloud and the Holy Spirit as a pocket-sized presence of God. Paul urges them to understand that God's Spirit does not dwell in the midst of pockets in the church. Its presence cannot be sequestered among little groups 
with a peculiar claim to superior wisdom or for only the best pastor or those with the most striking spiritual gifts. Those who attempt to create sanctified subdivisions tear the fabric of the church, according to Paul, for whom parceling the Holy Spirit is utterly inconceivable. I'm not surprised that we're guilty of thinking that way, particularly in the West, in the church, where we are heirs to a culture of individualism. Unfortunately, many of us are guilty of holding the Holy Spirit captive to that culture. And our communities, because of our obsession with individual experiences of the Spirit, shrivel. To correct this, we would do well to grasp this simple truth. The church, local and universal, diverse and Catholic, is a spirit-filled temple. The church, your church, your congregation, our core, is a spirit-filled temple. We cannot have divided loyalties. The Holy Spirit, according to this metaphor, is something more than mine, something that gives more than just me a life. What the Corinthians did not understand is that the house of God cannot and must not be subdivided, rankled by rivalries, scattered by schisms, diminished by its misconceived differences. We need to be careful to not allow the autonomy of the individual to reduce the scope of the Holy Spirit, which fills temples with life and holiness. Neglect of this dimension of the Spirit breeds a Christianity of personal preference. In the case of the Corinthians, a dangerous preference for certain leaders. And the result of this take on the Holy Spirit is schism, which Paul utterly repudiates. Division in the church, which Paul detests. Christians are a spirit-filled temple. Not one spirit-filled room in the temple. Not just one part, individual, spirit-filled priest or parishioner or soldier in an empty temple. He is so driven to distraction and so concerned about the Corinthian problem that he simply says, don't y'all know that y'all are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in y'all? Now, I want us, as we finish considering this, to know that we are connected when we become saved in the most powerful way imaginable. We've even used connection as an important way of defining salvation. The connection between God and you has been restored when you accept Christ as your Savior. But speaking of 
the body of Christ. We are connected by the Holy Spirit's presence. He is working in all of our interactions as we live with one another. Yes, he lives in you, and yes, he lives in me. But our spiritual lives are also intimately connected with the body of Christ, with the church. We need to stay connected. Otherwise, the teaching in this passage is that we will not grow unless we grow by living in one another and with one another. We need to know each other well. I'm thinking of life in COVID time, that we can pray for each other. My contact with many of my family members and my dear friends is of necessity distant. We're not physically together. Oh, but we're connected. <laughs> and what power there is in that connection. So the lesson for us as we launch into thinking about corporate holiness is that being filled with the Holy Spirit involves our relationships with one another. Now let me say it as clearly as I can. I want you to think honestly about your own situation and understanding of your life in the Spirit. We are not just friends and acquaintances. We are not just people who go to the same church. We are the family of God. We are the body of Christ. Each of us a unique part whose gifts are designed to complement and help every other member of the body. We cannot be led and filled by the Spirit if we are not in connection with one another in the way that God's Spirit is using us to do what our holiness is designed to do in the economy of God. We are God's temple. Now as we move forward, we're going to look at some very powerful images and motifs and teachings in the New Testament about corporate holiness. We're going to look at the body of Christ. Just like we are not one room in a temple, the teaching is very clear that each of us function as a member of the body of Christ or a part or an organ. Our relationship is intimate and, and it's organic. And so, if we think of the body of Christ, here I could be perhaps an appendix. But if I am just an appendix, sitting out here all alone, filled with the Holy Spirit, there's not much he can do with this struggling and sloppy and, from what the doctors tell me, totally useless <laughs> organ in my body. You see, we are only functioning as the body of Christ when we are in relationship with one another. We may look at what many Bible teachers and mature believers find to be the most powerful motif of the corporate church, and that is John 15, I am the vine, you are the branches. 
everything there, and there are so many uses of that picture in Paul's letters and even Peter throughout the New Testament. What a picture of an organism and of being intimately bound together with one another. We definitely are going to look at this in terms of being restored into God's image. You see, we were created, Genesis tells us, in the image of God. Now, when we talk about that in uh, doctrine and theology classes or settings like that in Sunday school or in study groups, many different uh, things come to our mind that uh, help us imagine what it means to be made in God's image. Certainly, it means that we are spirit and the breath, the spirit, is breathed into us and that differentiates us. But when we were created into God's image, we were created into fellowship because the nature of God is that he is in fellowship constantly. The wonderful teaching on the Trinity, which the church, I think, is rediscovering today in new and powerful ways, and will bring us into such more deep understanding of God and who we are. The Trinity is a constant, intimate fellowship between God the Son and God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. And so if we are made in God's image, we are made to fellowship. And of course, that picture is used in the New Testament. That we are made to be restored back to the image of God that Adam and Eve had. We are saved to be holy. And you're saying the same thing. But that holiness includes far more than just us. It includes being in proper relationship with God. And that means with one another. We have exciting days ahead. But I hope this passage has not only whetted your appetite, but spoken to your hearts today. Holiness, just to put it in the context of our previous study, in Romans 5 to 8 taught us that the rest of our life after the point where we are saved is the process and ongoing work of sanctification. We are saved to be sanctified. And that includes growing in grace. And we've mentioned several times, and we will many times again, that today's sanctification is not good for tomorrow. That's why growth in grace and the process is such an important part of scriptural holiness and of sanctification. So, I'm looking forward to sharing with you about some of those things. And my prayer again is that this has been an inspiration and a help to you, that uh, you and I have both been edified as we've looked at this passage of Scripture and are reminded that we, we are God's temple. I'll look forward to being with you next time. God bless you.
Thanks so much for listening, and we'd love to hear from you. Share your thoughts, questions, or prayer requests. Visit us at SalvationArmySoundcast.org slash holiness. And if you're enjoying this Bible study, share it with a friend. They can subscribe wherever they get their podcasts. Thank you.